Welcome back, Pithy listeners. Today, we are interrupting our usual programming to bring you breaking history. Because it's clear to us that not everyone, <coughs> Putin, is in the know. Hey, y'all. I'm Erica. And I'm Caroline. And today, we're bringing you another episode of the Pithy Chronicle History with a Bite. Our historical retellings are guaranteed to entertain. We are here to prove that history is just another reality show, except this melodrama is unscripted. So let's open up the book and jump in. In the time it takes you to drive to work, we promise to fascinate, surprise, and enlighten you. All you have to do is listen. Are you hungry yet? The chaos of this past week, the pain and suffering of the Ukrainians has been on my mind, as I'm sure it has for many of you. I've been religiously checking my phone for updates, super glued to the news, and of course, continually downloading my favorite podcasts for all the latest info. I fully admit that a war in modern-day Europe freaks me out. It's scary. It's surreal. Who would have thought we would have seen a land war in Europe in our lifetime? It was not expected, from me at least. But here it is. And so I started to wonder, why? Why Russia? Why Putin? Why are you doing this? Surely you have better things to do than attack your neighbors. I mean... I hear there's a pandemic going on. Have you heard about that? Oh my god, what? No. But look, I've had annoying neighbors, the elephants that lived in the apartment above me, the opera singer who wouldn't stop practice. Oh wait, that was me. Well, anyway, we've all been there. But very few of us have launched a full-scale invasion of the house next door. So, what the hell? And if it's not just neighborly disputes, which... Considering the devastation, it damn well better not be. What is it? I want a reason. And so do I. Thus, I turn to the history books, as one does. Mm, No, no, I think that's just us. Oh, okay, just us. (laughs) Well, I knew the basics. After all, I do like history. I know a little something. So I thought, I'll go to the sources. I'll scan the archives. Surely there is a reason Putin feels Ukraine belongs to Russia. Or maybe I'm just giving him too much credit. I don't know. You are. There's no way around that, Caroline. You absolutely are. (laughs) And remember, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely. That's hard to argue with, especially when you consider the mass protests and demonstrations of the Russian populace against this invasion and the inhumane nature of it. For instance, TV Rain, an independent news network's crew, resigned en masse, on air, after a pro-Ukrainian declaration of no war. They walked out, and they started playing Swan Lake on loop, the same way it was played when the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm. Yeah, it's a really significant statement politically, especially in the face of over 7,300 Russian protesters being arrested after criticizing Putin's war of choice. War of choice. Exactly. And I'm sure there will continue to be more arrests because there is resistance in Russia. Putin's actions are not reflective of all Russians, but that 
is the present, <laughs> and we try not to dabble in the present. So let's get back to the past. Tell me what you found. Uh, I found a hot mess, like a hot mess. Is there anything <laughs> else? <laughs> Honestly, no, it was just a hot mess. But despite that, I'm going to do my very best to give a concise historical account of a complicated, messy, millennia-long story that has now spread from the history books to the newspapers. I'm just going to be impressed how you do a millennia-long saga in this episode, but yeah, <laughs> lay it on me. I have talents. I have talents. Okay. Indeed. Indeed. Putin isn't the first to believe Ukraine belongs to Russia. Not just belongs, but has always been a part of. It's a common element of Russian nationalist rhetoric, something the state teaches from a young age. But history is never black and white. Though, to be clear, the revisionist history being spun by Putin, we can confidently say is incorrect. So let's go back to the 9th century CE. My favorite place. I'm a Renaissance girl, but whatevs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, 9th century CE. A group of Varangians, which is a fancy word for Eastern Raiding Vikings, made their way to what is now central Ukraine and northwestern Russia, conquering the Slavs previously living there and establishing Kiev as their capital. They called themselves Rus. Well, that sounds familiar. Oh, indeed. In contrast, Moscow, Russia's imperial capital, didn't even exist for another 200 years, and even then, it was a bit of a backwater, a minor settlement, a distant frontier of the mighty medieval Kievan Rus. And today, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, all three, claim Kievan Rus as their heritage, their roots, their beginnings. I'm thinking the Russian government doesn't love the fact that its medieval capital heritage roots are not actually Russian, or at least in Russia proper. Exactly. It's definitely a blow to their imperial ego. After all, it is where the beloved Grand Prince Volodymyr the Saint baptized the Rusins, as they were known, as Orthodox Christians. It has a huge emotional place in the Russian Chronicle. But were the Rusins really Russian, or Ukrainian, or even Belarusian? Do you have an answer for me? Of course I do. No, they were Varangians, mixed with Eastern Slavs. More than a thousand years ago, it's pretty hard to designate their ethnicity to a country that didn't yet exist. They were a melting pot. They spoke many Eastern Slavic dialects, which would in time develop into modern Ukrainian, Belarusian, and Russian. But at the time, they were Rusins who lived in Kievan Rus, ruled by the Grand Princes of Kiev. Period. End of sentence. All right, I'm following you. History isn't linear. Cross-cultural interactions constantly change the directory of an entire people. We can't be defined by our very, very distant past. Got it. Precisely. So, let's fast forward a couple hundred years and the Mongols arrive, invade, and conquer. As they do. As they do. This is when the Rusins begin to splinter. The Western principalities suddenly found themselves under Lithuanian and then Polish control, while the Eastern principalities remained under the Mongols, though the Muscovy princes did eventually throw off these foreign rulers, leading to the Rurik dynasty and its Grand Duchy of Moscow. 
Kiev and Moscow wouldn't meet again for centuries. Centuries? Like almost four centuries. Wow. Each faction rose and developed and changed until they hardly recognized each other. But being neighbors, they were bound to cross paths eventually. In the elevator, the parking garage, taking out I the mean, trash, you get it. going to the grocery. We all have those neighbors, yeah. So the Eastern Principalities, now referring to themselves as Cossacks, initially accepted Polish rule, but opposing religions made the relationship mm, challenging. The ruling Poles were Catholic, while the peasant Cossacks were Orthodox. I feel like there's got to be a revolution coming, right? And here it is! 1648, Hetman Bodon Kmelnitsky. Sounds like Hitman, but Hetman meaning... It does sound like Hitman, but it means a Cossack general. So not exactly a Hitman, but maybe not that far off. Not that far off. Okay, got it. So this Cossack general slash Hitman incited a massive peasant rebellion and religious war, eventually gaining independence for what's now central Ukraine. Known as the Cossack Hetmanate, Hetmanate coming from the word Hetman, this Ukrainian state lasted a little over 100 years, during which time it made a lot of progress. It established a distinct Ukrainian Baroque tradition, in contrast with its Russian and Polish counterparts. It had a better level of education than Russia, and it was essential in the transmission of European culture and intellectual influences into Russia. It was the gateway. But Cossack Hetmanet had a lot of very close, and by close I mean physically close, enemies. And they needed protection. Very early on, they turned to the Orthodox Muscovite Tsars for help. But while the Cossacks anticipated a reciprocal relationship, hmm. the Muscovites assumed otherwise. They began to establish Russian forts in Ukrainian towns and basically just began to take over. They took a call for help to mean a call for invasion. Whoops. Oopsie, such an easy mistake, oh darn. You get it. Come help us, come take us. So hard to differentiate, especially because they spoke two different languages. Translation issues, I know all about that. So the Cossacks needed a new ally. They turned to the Swedes for protection against the Russians. Ironic, needing protection from their protectors. Mm, But very sadly... The Muscovites didn't enjoy irony. So this plea for help was treated by the Russians as a justification to invade. Ooh, wow, golly gee. This sounds painfully familiar. Painfully familiar. History is absolutely repeating itself. So children, when you're sitting in history class thinking, ugh, why do we bother? This, this is the reason right here. History repeats itself over and over and over again. And if you know that, you can learn from others' mistakes instead of making them yourself. It's clear Putin didn't pay enough attention in his history class. (laughs) And do you want to be like him? Agreed. Though his education was during the Soviet Union, so it is quite possible that he didn't learn the truth. They did have a habit of um, falsifying the facts. Fair enough. All this drama leads to Catherine II of Russia, who not only wanted Ukraine, but wanted it to assimilate into Russia. In 1764, just over 100 years after the Hetmanate began, it ended, taking the Cossack autonomy with it. 
and to mark the occasion and, of course, celebrate herself, Catherine II had a medal mentioned with the words, What was torn away, I restored. Oh my. See, I told you they like to falsify the facts. <laughs> oh yeah. Not so much restored as absorbed. All this was taking place around the same time as the American and French revolutions, and the Ukrainians saw a new option, a new perspective. Based on the ideas of nationalism, Ukrainians began to seek an independent Ukrainian territory, a linguistically and ethnically distinct territory with a unified population. Okay, more revolution. Yep. And while the Ukrainians began publishing in their own language and felt a draw to the European romantic philosophers of the age, the Russians did not. Of course not. Rather than embracing these new ideals, Russia just doubled down on its demand for dynastic loyalty. Be Russian or else? Honestly, yeah. Okay. And they brought this demonstrative governance to Ukraine, where they quickly realized that this whole nationalism slash separate Ukrainian culture thing was not good for a unified Russian empire. And so they suppressed it, I'm guessing, here. They did. They suppressed it. When in doubt, take it out. (laughs) Came up with that all by myself. That's right. Gosh, you're so charming. (laughs) Banning all books published in Ukrainian, among other harsher measures. But that backfired. Ukrainian activists officially began using the designator Ukrainian instead of names based on the term Rus attempting to separate themselves from Russians. It was a deliberate choice. They began to develop and nourish a cultural identity before a national identity was even possible. And this brings us all the way up to World War I, when the <clears throat> stuff really hit the fan. Ooh, yeah. Not a good time for Imperial no, Russia. Not, not. Not. <laughs> One of Russia's early aims within the war was to gather, or take areas that were previously part of the ancient Rus lands and suppress all but Russian culture. But obviously, that didn't exactly work out. Instead of crushing Ukrainian nationalism and crafting a robust empire, the whole thing just collapsed. And in the end, the area of Ukraine was formed into two republics, which quickly unified in 1919, creating the fleeting Ukrainian People's Republic. While it didn't last long, this was a big deal, and it remains a huge milestone for Ukrainian independence. Because now, the Bolsheviks can't just reunify the Russian lands, because Ukraine is clearly something separate, something else. Instead, they have to recognize the existence of a distinct modern nation. Despite the Bolsheviks' reconquest of much of the former Russian Empire's territories, They had to pay homage to Ukraine by making a Ukrainian Soviet Republic, which was one of the founders of the full Soviet Union in 1922. So despite only being a republic for three years, they managed to impose their nationalism on Russia? Uh Uh-huh. And this independent streak really didn't sit well with folks like Joseph Stalin, you know, the Soviet dictator. Gosh, can't imagine why. Mm-hmm. Mm, shocking. He always felt that an independent Ukraine was a problem. A problem he wished to avoid. Oh no, Caroline. Yep, yep, you hear it coming. In an effort to stamp out Ukrainian influence, he imposed collective farming on the Ukrainian peasantry. 
and to crush the inevitable Ukrainian resistance to this, he engineered a famine, which killed roughly 4 million Ukrainian people. Um, engineered? How does one engineer a famine? Oof. This is really complicated, and I will say that it is a little debated. Some historians point out that there were a lot of natural disasters that helped this along, but there is a lot of proof that this was done intentionally. Basically, the government consolidated individual land and labor into collective farms, which most of the peasants viewed correctly as basically a new type of serfdom. One example is in 1929, Stalin decreed a collectivization of livestock. So you had to turn over all of your cattle, 80% of your pigs, and 60% of your goats within three months, which forced the Ukrainians to slaughter all their livestock or just give it to the government. And this process was similar to how they treated other essentials like grain. Yeah, this sounds super counterintuitive insane and inhumane. All of the above. At the same time, he implemented mass repressions against Ukrainian intellectuals. And together, the repressions and the government-induced famine are known as the Holodomor, or murder by famine. It was a genocide of the Ukrainian people. I did not know about this. How did I not know about this? Oh, so easily. Russia, as the successor to the Soviet Union, absolutely refuses to acknowledge these events. According to Putin, the Holodomor never happened. Again? This feels so familiar! And never happened! Absolutely not! Lies, 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 lies! Yes, lies, 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 lies. And next on the list was assimilation. Now that they had murdered and suppressed the Ukrainians, it was time to make them full-on Russian. Begun by Stalin and continued by Khrushchev, Soviet leaders continually wrangled with Ukrainian nationalism. Soviet Russia used the slogan, a friendship of peoples, to minimize their neighbors, claiming Russia as an older brother to the, quote, other peoples of the USSR. Okay, older brother, little brother, big brother, small brother. Do you know what it sounds like to me? A bully. It does sound like a bully, and it's very demeaning. Yeah, the Soviets were definitely bullies. And if you deviated from the Soviet narrative, which routinely distorted the histories of non-Russian nations, you were charged with nationalist deviations, which was a political crime. Mm-hmm. So they outlawed nationalism, which is so wild because that was the practice of the USSR. Only for Russian nationalism. The other people's were culturally repressed. It was the Soviet way or the highway. And to make sure you were towing the line, the USSR displaced Russians, their own people, from their homes and moved them to the various other SSRs to ensure that Russian culture permeated and prevailed. Rude. Downright rude. Do not move me from my house. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. No. Don't move people. That's rude. But the Soviets did. However... They didn't succeed. By the 1980s, it was clear that Ukrainian national identity couldn't be suppressed. It survived. Along with the Baltic republics, Ukraine rejected the Soviet Union and finally declared itself an independent nation. Interestingly, many historians and political scientists believe that the Soviet Empire 
might have survived if Ukraine had stayed with Russia. It might have become just a reduced version of its former self, but without Ukraine, it was impossible for the USSR to survive. And therefore, by leaving the USSR, Ukraine really just left Russia. Now that's a breakup. Yeah, it had to sting. And it fostered great animosity between Russia and Ukraine. They couldn't have a nice, amicable divorce. Nope. By leaving Russia, Ukraine injured its big brother, creating a very hostile relationship. So by getting divorced, they lost the house. The big house. <laughs> yeah, perfect. They lost their big house. Today, it's been three decades of independence for Ukraine, and each passing year means fewer and fewer Ukrainians who consider themselves Russian or who look back fondly on their Soviet days. And of course, Russia's relatively recent annexation of Crimea didn't help things. The majority of pro-Russian Ukrainians were living in those areas. So now that they are a part of Russia, there are less pro-Russian Ukrainians left in Ukraine. So because of Putin, Ukraine is even more anti-Russian. Hmm, can't imagine that was his goal. I doubt that was the plan, yeah. And I'm sure that this past week has altered the political landscape even further. I couldn't imagine how. Yeah, mystery. Last year, Putin wrote a very long love letter, in essence, to the Ukrainians entitled on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. He described Russians and Ukrainians as, quote, one nation, and he claimed that the fall of the Soviet Union was a, quote, disintegration of historical Russia. Furthermore, he wrote that Ukraine was a communist Russian creation and is now obviously just a puppet of the West. Yeah, that does not sound like a real nice love letter. Well, he was like, you know you want to be with us. You know you are us. But yeah, no, it's it's not. You know you want me. You know you want me. Like, no, I don't. No, I don't. Putin, stop roofing my drink. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes, yes. But Putin did have a small problem. Soviet Russia absolutely recognized Ukrainians as a separate ethnic nation, the Ukrainian Republic within the Soviet Union. So while arguing that Russians and Ukrainians are, quote, one people, Putin couldn't look to the USSR to back him up. He had to go further back to Imperial Russia, because the czars, unlike the Soviets, thought of Ukrainians as part of the Russian nation, as a little Russian tribe, with their unique language nothing more than a dialect. So, if Ukraine is independent, it is a threat to Russia's imperial aspirations. And let's not fool ourselves, these are absolutely imperial aspirations. Oh yeah. If the West welcomes Ukraine into NATO and offers it protection, Putin believes he'll never be able to get it back to get back imperial Russia, to be an empire. And that would be <gasps> devastating. I'm devastated, can't you tell? Mm. Well, on a little bit of a funnier note, did you know that there's a story about how Putin got a Super Bowl ring? I knew he had one. It, sound, it sounds familiar. N no? Well, spoiler alert, he didn't actually play in a Super Bowl. Damn it. Shocking, I know. Robert Kraft, owner of the New England Patriots, was in Russia for business when he met Putin and excited to show off his diamond-encrusted ring, he handed it to the former Russian president, who put it on and famously said, I could kill someone with this ring. That's not my response to diamonds, but hey. It is not. It is also not my response to diamonds. So I'm not a dictator. What do what, I know? What do I know? 
But as Kraft reached out to take it back, Putin slipped it into his pocket and walked away with three bodyguards trailing him. Oh, so history is just really, really, really repeating itself. Time and time again. So Kraft obviously wanted his ring back. Reasonably. Reasonably, exactly. But I guess the U.S. government said, quote, it would really be in the best interest of U.S.-Soviet relations if you meant to give him the ring as a present, unquote. And for our tuned-in listeners, Robert Kraft is quoted as saying Soviet, despite the USSR being well into the past by 2005. Oh my. Okay. And with that lovely little theft, that's that. I hope that we've clarified some things, I hope we've entertained, and I hope we've enlightened. History is being made right now in the heart of Europe. Don't let revisionist history write the future. Oh, and before we go, Kiev is the Ukrainian pronunciation. Kiev is the Russian one. It's amazing how one little syllable can make all the difference. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, review, share, and subscribe. Till next time, I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we are Pithily Yours. This episode is brought to you by the Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, submarine warfare, neuroscience, or cat husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer. Just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!